Welcome to the Fair Observer podcast in collaboration with the IFOR Research Center, IRC, at the Osaka School of International Public Policy. My name is Haruko Sato, co-director of the IRC and today's moderator. This podcast series, Implications of Ukraine on Asia, is part of the IRC project, Peace and Human Security in Asia, towards a meaningful Japan-Korea partnership sponsored by the Korea Foundation. This episode, Is Realpolitik Back?, is the first in the series of three episodes. We have today Bryce Wakefield, Executive Director of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, and Jae Woo Chu, Professor of Chinese Studies at Kyung Hee University in Seoul, to join the conversation. Hello, Jae Woo. Hello, Bryce. Uh, we hope to shed light to a regional relations landscape that may emerge as a result of Ukraine and discuss some of the challenges and prospects. So let me ask first to both of you, um, the war in Ukraine is turning out to be quite transformative in many ways, not least for European security, but also for Asian security. I think the rippling effect is quite tremendous. And I really have no idea where things are going. But what will emerge at the end of this tunnel when there are talks of the end of globalization as we've known it, and also a growing cynicism towards U.S. leadership and Western double standards? So uh, this is my basically the first question. What, in your views, would be the immediate concerns and challenges, for example, this comparison with Uh, Ukraine being the next Taiwan, or if it's not the case, what are some of the the concerns that we really should be looking to? And this would also include the United Nations and what of UN Security Council reform, so on and so forth. So first, shall I turn to Bryce? Sure, Haruko. Thanks for um, having me on. Look, um, there's a lot of lot to unpack in your introduction there. Um, I'd, I'd start out by saying, um, you know, a lot, when I when I when the um, Ukraine invasion first happened, there was an article in, I think it was the Sydney Morning Herald by the journalist Peter Harcher, who declared that the um, the rules based order is dead; it's over. Um, I think I think that sort of language goes um, a bit too far. I mean, I think you know that we have to we have to firstly sit back and and watch how this plays out. Um, but um, you know, people who are predicting the death of, for example, the nineteen forty five system, you know, the, the the system of alliances based on um, on on U.S. security guarantees. The system of um, uh, of 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 international law that that has been maintained since the Second World War. Such um, predictions are a little bit premature. We have to we have to realize that the 1945 system or the San Francisco system, if you want to call it that, has gone through several reiterations uh, since it was put together. Um, and uh, we may be looking at um, a new reiteration of it. Um, certainly, the um, thinking in uh, think tank circles uh, and university circles is that 
um, US power is declining, um, but that doesn't mean the system of alliances that has, to some extent, sustained um, uh, the international order in that post-war period um, is is dead and buried. It, it, it probably means that it will take a new form with um, partners around the world. And, you know, we're thinking the EU, Australia, Japan, um, playing more um, more of an active role within their respective alliances than, than the notion that the alliance system is, 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 is over, as it were. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Bryce. Um, so, Jay Wu, your thoughts on what's coming? I have to go along with Bryce, too, uh, on, this, uh, on this question. Uh, but I'm, I'm probably more optimistic. Uh, yes, I think, uh, I think we're in good hands of San Francisco system here. Without it, I think, uh, you know, East Asia would be a mess. You know, we would have gone through uh we would have gone through what europe went through in the 90s and at this particular juncture so you know the san francisco system is uh, still effective in keeping the region in peace and stability uh because of the you know strong alliance system that the united states has built uh following the ratification of san francisco treaty and the bilateral alliance system is uh, basically uh, pushing everything under the rug. You know, the ter- potential territorial dispute, uh, the borderline disputes, and, and so forth. So uh, all of these, you know, these uh, conflicts uh, still remain dormant in our relationship as we can see with in, in China's case. Uh, but uh, my concern would be rather on the United Nations. Uh, the United Nations, uh, in the absence of a strong alliance system and the collapse of, uh, what do you call it, the Alta system. And uh, I think uh, uh, it, it hasn't been too effective in keeping other regions in peace. Uh, and we see Russia's veto and China's absentee vote that has uh, failed the United Nations to take any kind of resolutions in in Ukraine case. And uh, with recent North Korea's provocations, the United Nations uh, Security Council tried to rally a resolution against North Korea and, and an additional sanctions, but also uh, ran into the opposition of China and Russia. So uh, it, it is not our choice any longer that we would have to remain idle and just watch North Korea taking probably the seventh uh, nuclear test probably in the following month. So we got to do something about the United Nations. I think uh, I think uh, today's talk should be more focused on our concern with United Nations instead of uh, this particular region. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> Thank you, Jamie. Actually, yeah. I'm, I'm more than happy to discuss that. Um, uh, <laughs> but <you. laughs> okay, so um, let, let let me come back to to the the UN question because you said some interesting things about the San Francisco system and how that works or endures and it has its virtues, whereas the the UN system or the United Nations itself is in some ways faltering in keeping. Um, other regions, peace. Um, I think that's a very um, important or interesting um, observation. Because, um, but but let me just get back to that in a bit. Because as part of the Korea Foundation thing, I do have to address something to do with this region, and this is why uh, the combination of of, of you and uh, Bryce are here because we're basically the three plus Singapore, the countries that joined the Western sanctions. So the next the next question actually is turning to Asia, and it really is about the Asian like-minded states that joined the West economic sanctions against Russia. And these are Australia, Japan, Republic of Korea, and Singapore. And this is in some ways somewhat of a hub-and-spokes lineup, but I believe that each have uh, different calculations to join this Western chorus to condemn Russia, and with perhaps different consequences as well as gains. Um, and here, I think obviously the concern for all of us is the direction of US-China relations and how that would impact this region. Um, and this includes, of course, the San Francisco system. Because um, so many issues stem from this bilateral relationship, from the nature of the order, as well as global and regional economic and financial system, to divisive issues over values such as democracy and human rights, issues of global concern such as climate crisis, public health, energy security. And to this, we might also add that there are issues in this region that are in the humanitarian development, and peace nexus. But um, in particular, in reference to particularly the three countries that we represent, Australia, Japan, and uh, Korea, we're all allied security-wise to the United States, but also have deep economic interdependence with China. So given these, this, this is an interesting moment, I think, where we could probably speak about our country's calculations, risks, and how the Ukraine situation and how China behaves uh, towards or within this uh, sort of leaning towards Russia or leaning towards the United Nations, leaning towards whatever whatever calculations that China may have may impact also our relationship with both countries, the United States and uh, China. So um, could we have a few words on those, perhaps this time, starting with Jay Wu? Yeah, yeah. I think it's an interesting moment for China. Uh, uh, China is obviously undergoing, or China is in a transition, leadership transition period this year. And historically, when China is undergoing a leadership transition period, uh, their external relationship has uh, 
has been really relatively calm. They don't try to be provocative. Uh, they would like try to, uh, they would like to deflect any, any kind of external challenges that might affect the transition process. So rather they would like to concentrate on the domestic issues and emphasizing on domestic stability and the progress of the work that they've been, that, that they've been putting together for the success of the transition. Power transition here. So, it, it, I think for that reason, China, we, we can see China being ra rather uh, less proactive when it comes to this, uh, external foreign relations issues uh, to the extent that uh, they may they may seem a little. Uh, inactive. Uh, they would like to, China probably would like to keep uh, as low profile as they could possibly in their external relations. So I think uh, if, if the United States, United States wants to strengthen its uh, alliance system, I think this is good timing. That's why I've been telling my current colleagues here that if you want to uh, make a final decision on joining Quad or Indo-Pacific strategy, I think this is good timing. And if you have something that you want to demand to China, I think this is also good timing too. You want to be as proactive as possible uh, if, if you want to let something all out on China. So this is an interesting period when it comes to China's foreign policy. Uh, I think uh, we can take advantage of that. And also, I think uh, China is, I think uh, they're caught off guard by the new form of war that was in, that was being displayed in Ukraine. Uh, I think China was caught off guard 30 years ago during the, uh, during the Gulf War. They were really shocked by the firepower of the United States uh, new new weapons and weaponries, and this time, a uh, new form of war. I would call it uh, a hybrid war uh, that is being displayed in Ukraine. Is 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 I think it's really surprising to China, and for that reason, I don't think China can be. Uh, really as a concern that we like to depict, uh, especially in its relationship with Taiwan. I don't think uh, uh, after, after observing uh, the international society's sanction uh, that they took against Russia uh, is, is, is pleasing to China. I think uh, they would have to do the recalculation of their military strategy, especially in the context of uh, Taiwan Strait. Uh, so I think uh, China is in demand for new strategy in the aftermath of Ukraine war. So I think that's another point that's that's going to hold back China. Mm. And so I think for Korea, 
especially with our new government uh, coming in in May, uh, they're very proactive in rebuilding our relationship with the United States and Japan. And to the extent that this government has a strong interest in building relationship with Australia too, whether that could directly translate into our, uh, you know, a straight pass to quad, but, uh, still, yeah, I think, uh, they have a strong, uh, motivation and, uh, interest in, uh, strengthening relationship with the members of quad. And that's for sure. And so, uh, I think, uh, the incoming government of Korea, we could safely say that, uh, that will be more taking sides with like-minded states and our uh, government is going to try to make greater contributions to preserving the international liberal order. Yeah, that's my two cents. Yeah. Reassuring. Sweet to Japanese ears. <laughs> anyway, um, so Bryce, um, so what is your or Australia's positioning in all this? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll talk about the government's positioning um, in brief uh, because it's not just the Chinese government that is going through a transition period. It also might be the Australian government because we have an election coming up in a couple of months. And um, several commentators have noted that, and this goes beyond uh, before the uh, the Ukraine crisis, that the government has tried to frame this as what we call a khaki election. Um, in other words, one where um, national security issues are brought to the fore. Now, I don't think the public is going to vote on national security issues, but it's something that the government has certainly tried to use to differentiate itself from the opposition. The opposition is trying um, very hard uh, to create the impression, at least, that there is no difference. Um, uh, but we had, for example, the prime minister, and and he was um, and he was called out for this by the the speaker. But we held had him calling the leader of the opposition a Manchurian candidate. Um, that sort of that sort of language is is starting to appear now after the Ukraine crisis, or after the Ukraine the, the beginning of the Ukraine invasion. The prime minister Scott Morrison gave a speech um, where he referred to. Uh, China and Russia being part of an arc of autocracy. So in a sense, he's kind of mirroring um, language that's coming out of the United States on um, the, the current sort of global contestation being a contest between democracies and um, authoritarian states. Now, there's, there's, there's something of a danger in this. Now, Morrison's gambit here, of course, is to put Russia and Ukraine in the same box as China. And of course, he's been criticizing China um, uh, throughout his his term as prime minister quite harshly. And to put, China, uh, put Russia, which is kind of the current bad guy, into the same box as China and label them both autocracies uh, plays into, um, into his po domestic political calculations. But there's the risk, I think... Um, of conflating the two countries 
um, and that leads to a, a risk of a lack of policy differentiation between the two. And, um, you know, that's, that's um, unwise, I think, because although, you know, neither the Putin regime, if we can call it that, nor the, um, nor the CCP under Xi or indeed at all are particularly pleasant regimes to deal with, they are different. Um, you know, Russia is a kleptocracy and China is a social socialist market economy and the way that things are run in both of these countries are different. So you do need some policy differentiation in, in how you um, deal with them. The other, um, the other risk, I think, is if you're going to start labeling um, countries as non-democratic, so, so there are two there are two norms, if you like, um, at play in the Ukraine crisis, and there's a clear violation of sovereignty, the norm of sovereignty, um, and also you can talk about um, uh, Russia and China, I guess, versus the West, and these these very kind of Manichaean terms, democracy, democracies versus autocracies. Um, and I think it's it's clear that we ought to condemn um, China and Russia for for both, well, for Russia at least for violating the norm of sovereignty, and and both for being anti democratic nations. But if you lean too heavily on um, the 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 critique of autocracy or or authoritarianism. Um, you may well find Australia may well find that it is going to alienate um, some of its neighbours around the region, particularly those states um, that are in play in the South China Sea. So those states can get on board with a message of um, a rules-based international order um, when such language refers to uh, the principle of sovereignty, which of course is a principle that that um, that all states um, within within the UN system uh, claim to uphold. Even Russia, uh, you know, had a, a very very thin fig leaf of um, of protecting the, the 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 rights of what it saw as independent states and in, in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, but when you start veering off into a kind of black versus white, democracy versus autocracy narrative, then you may well um, uh, lose. Of course, we all want to be democratic, but you may well you may well lose some of the states that you are attempting to convince um, in your messaging on China. Um, so. So a lot is a lot of a lot of Australia's messaging um, uh, is a little bit simplistic. I think uh, is complicated by um, India, which uh, which um, I'm sure we'll talk about um, in greater detail. But of course, um, abstained from the resolution on um, on on sanctioning um, Russia. Um, but what should be noted that. Uh, what should be noted is that, that uh, a lot of states in Southeast Asia also basically didn't put their name to the resolution. So um, in the in the General Assembly, not in the UNSC. So um, so so it's complicated. Basically, is the is is the message that we should be adopting here, and we should be adopting finely tuned policy responses to 
different states around the world and in the region. Thank you, Bryce. Actually, thank you for talking about that sort of uh, the danger of uh, the the uh, labeling authoritarian versus democracy. I think that's really quite an important conversation that I think I should have with some of my European colleagues too. Um, but anyway, I will also give um, uh, my two cents on Japan uh, because I think Japan is, uh, as you know, we've had a new prime minister elected in October out of a, a surprise uh, sort of a resignation or stepping down of uh, Prime Minister Suga. And this, uh, to me, is, um, I've written somewhere, I think, uh, that it presents Japan with a, a very, um, at least, less ideologically charged government that won't go chasing after sort of historical identity issues and justification and bringing out um, some revisionist views uh, on history that hamper a lot of our relationship with um, Japan's neighbors. Um, and um, at the moment, I would really like the everybody to ignore uh, whatever is that uh, former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo is talking about uh, from the sidelines about uh, Japan um, housing, um, deploying American nuclear weapons on Japanese soil. Um, even his brother, uh, Defense Minister Kishi, has been very, very quick to deny this. And Prime Minister Kishida also um, does not have any such intentions. And um, But I know that the Western media has been picking up on Prime Minister's uh, um, Abe-san's provocations almost. But that is very unlikely. Nonetheless, um, I think the important thing about the Kishida government is that it will pursue some of these strategic uh, objectives that were outlined during the past 10 years uh, by the by Prime Minister Abe as well as Prime Minister Suga. And um, to that, it will be really about strengthening and enhancing uh, Japan's defense cooperation with the United States and also with, as it's happening also with countries like Australia uh, and hopefully with Korea uh, at some point along the way. But I think the important thing is that Japan, um, out of all the countries running into a nationalism phase and populist phase, might really be coming out of it, for better or for worse, the Liberal Democratic Party whether you like them or not, as a ruling party, will once again be more of a broad church of views, particularly about foreign and security policy. I very much doubt that constitutional revision is going to be seriously pursued. And so in that sense, it will be a kind of more stable anchoring country, um, in particularly for this region, where we will be less of a cause for concern. And hopefully, and just like recently, I think last week, um, Prime Minister Kishida had a conversation with Prime Minister Modi. And so in that way, as Bryce 
mentioned, a lot of things are complicated, and each of our, each of us, each you know, Australia, Japan, and and South Korea, would have its own sort of niche places where they can perform uh, a role in 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 gluing this region together. But um, I think the point may be that Japan, at least, has gone through a, a sort of a phase of rise of right-wing nationalism and it's coming out of it which might be a slight uh i don't know i mean a positive thing at least given what is happening in other parts where we, we will see a lot of leadership changes um and elections so the thing to watch i suppose would be the 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 upcoming um upper house elections in the summer but other than that, um, fortuitously, I think Japan is in the middle. So that's my sort of... Can I, can I ask you a yes. question there, Haruko? Sure, so, sure. Um, so last year, um, there was much to do and, you know, much idle speculation, including my own, about what Abe's role would be and what the role of the Japanese right would be in including, you know, speculations about a deal struck between Kishida and um, Takeichi Sanai, who I think is what the the head of the um, the LDP's um, policy unit, the, the PARC, um, Policy Affairs Research Committee, isn't it? Um, mm. uh, do, you, do you actually see any influence being... I mean, it sounds to me like you don't. Um, you know, there was speculation on what Kishida sold to, um, to Abe and um, Takaichi in exchange for their support in the runoff election. And it seems to me that you're you're saying that there, you know, that influence has has pretty much waned. I'd, I'd agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, Abe talking about nuclear weapons and and um, and Taiwan on TV is um, is is sort of irrelevant. Um, it's you know, Abe says what he's what he likes when he's not prime minister. It's when he's prime minister that, that his comments count. But do you see no? Um, I mean, there, there were there were there were commentators in the New York Times, for example, saying that um, Kishida would sort of just be Abe's puppet. Do you do you not do you not see that as the case now? No, I don't see him as simply a puppet. Um, they're both veteran politicians. Kishida, for one, probably has more parliamentary experience, um, but that's not the only reason. I think that he placed um, Hayashi Yoshimasa as foreign minister, um, says a lot. Because uh, that was something that was... Because of Hayashi's connections to China. And also, also Hayashi is also a rival uh, political family in the same sort of uh, district in Yamaguchi as Abe. Hmm. So for... Okay. for um, and... The, these two family, Hayashi and the Abe family, go back when you know Japan still had the middle uh, district, you know, for um, elections, middle-sized district, and you know they were rivals. Uh, so for Kishida to put him 
to a point, and this is a direct result of uh, the uh, Amari Akira losing um, in the first instance in his single seat constituency uh, during the general elections. He resigned as the, the, the party uh, secretary general of the LDP. And then he replaced. So this was this was the moment that where the 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 ironclad fist <laughs> sort of loosened, uh, and um, I think Kishida-san saw the opportunity and put Hayashi as foreign minister as a kind of a counterweight also to Kishi, uh, who is also I think he's the secretary of the Taiwan Japan Parliamentarians Association. Um, so. Um, this this is and depending on the the election results in the summer, it might further strengthen uh, Kishida's position. And you know, there's a lot of um, moving about in the factions too in the Liberal Democratic Party. And I really do think that there is some sort of uh, nationalism, right wing fatigue in Japan. These are not the issues that the people are particularly interested in. So when the voting counts, um, and people, uh, I think they really want you know more sort of down to earth bread and butter issues like the economy uh, to to get better. So in that sense, um, I really uh, those who like to speculate that or to dismiss Kishida as as Abe's puppet, I think. Um, is is really overestimating or underestimating the party dynamics in the LDP itself. I think. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So yes. So okay, thank you. So um, I think we'd like to sort of finally um turn to the last question, which I would really at first I was actually going to ask, uh, discuss things about uh, how. Um, the new sort of, you know, mini lateralism or sort of different shapes of cooperation uh, between, especially for uh, sort of middle-sized states like all of us, Japan, Australia, and uh, South Korea might do for the future. But I'd like to really return to what um, Jay Woo suggested about the United Nations. Um, and um and also in in relation to why the San Francisco system is for its fluidity, and as also Bryce said, it's gone through different iterations uh, over the past seventy years, has endured, and it's likely to endure. While the United Nations is somewhat in, uh, well, we need to really address some of the the weaknesses that the United Nations has always had actually, but is now being sort of demonstratively uh, becoming uh, clearly uh, problematic. So um, would you like to, Bryce, would you like to start on this? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, we can talk about United Nations reform um, and in particular Security Council reform until we're blue in the face. It's probably not going to happen. I mean, you know, once you once you give the five permanent members the veto power, there's 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 really no um, no possibility for change. Now, 
would it be lovely if we had a I don't know a P eight with you know a majority veto or something rather than just um, any single state um, able to to crash the system? Yes, that would be nice. Of course, it would be, but uh, but we don't have that. That's not the world we live in, and I don't think we're going to get it. Um, I would say though that a lot of people. I mean, look, this is the this is the system that was built precisely in order to buy the um, in or, in order to 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 have the buy-in of the great powers. Um, and when there is great power conflict, um, the Security Council, at least, um, uh, grinds to a halt. Um, but that isn't the first time that we've seen this. In fact, you know, for um, for for the entirety of the Cold War, that was more or less the situation, right? You didn't. The, the United Nations was basically, you know. Um, useless in several conflicts that involve the great powers, if you think Vietnam, um, and after the Cold War as well. I mean, the the United United States tried to establish its own fig leaf before the invasion of Iraq, but that was clearly a, an illegal invasion, and in my mind, clearly um, not sanctioned by a Security Council resolution. And the United United Nations was more or less. Um, uh, helpless to stop it. Um, so when we talk about the value of the United Nations in uh, in conflicts like these, it's never so much um, uh, in the power of the Security Council to prevent conflict. The value of the United Nations is through its various agencies that are going to be able to provide aid and relief to um, to the Ukraine, particularly once the conflict has um, has ended, um, it's in declaratory statements by figures like the Secretary General um, about the illegality of Russia's position. It's in measures like that, or you know, and and measures we've we've already seen, you know, the a sort of normative statement by the um, uh, by the UN General Assembly. So all of these things do count. They do show um, delinquent states, let's say, where where the power of international norms, such as they are, lie. Um, and um, uh, but but you know we're we're not you know the, the the Security Council is is not going to be particularly effective in any situation like this and has not been through its past. Now that's not to say that the UN system is broken or valueless. I mean there are other measures that the United Nations and its agencies will take to alleviate um, alleviate the problems that we're facing now. Right. Thank you. Um so uh Jay Wu to I definitely agree with Bryce on the United Nations questions. But definitely, I think that there's one critical factor that is related to great power politics. And, you know, great power politics uh, has to be fixed in some way. I have no idea at all. But I think uh, when Bryce mentioned about, you know, crisis prevention and crisis management, I think... Uh, the United States, uh, United Nations, should be given the responsibility for, you know, crisis prevention alone, with its various agencies at work. 
but crisis management, I think uh, the uh, mandate of you know crisis management should be provided to some of the effective measures and means, uh, such as alliance or you know uh, or friendly nations supporting uh, the invaded or you know intruded uh, planet. I think uh, that's probably one way to go. I don't know. Just off the top of my head, uh, but when it comes to uh, San Francisco system, uh, I think uh, I think uh, from Ukraine case, I think we have learned a very very valuable lesson. Uh, when it comes to collective security system, I don't think anybody should be left out. No one can be left out. We cannot leave anybody from behind. Uh, we cannot leave any, anybody behind because uh, Ukraine was certainly not included in NATO. And I think uh, that gave uh, a rise to uh, Russia's provocations. And, uh, but with our, at least the bilateral system that the United States is leading in this region, I think uh, that's why with the uh, effective uh, regional order and system. I think it is more effective as of today. But, uh, you know, down the long run, the United States would like to transform the current bilateral uh, security system into a collective one based on the inter-alliance that the United States has been aspiring since the 50s. And Probably with the effective security, uh, San Francisco system plus, uh, collective security system that the United States, uh, would like to see as an inclusive one. I think, uh, we could have a different story here. I think it could be more effective against the rise of China. I think it could be effective against, uh, anybody that is, uh, trying to be provocative as Russia is today, is being today. And I think uh, from Korea's perspective, I think we should be more proactive uh, in this endeavor because realistically speaking for Quad or Indo-Pacific strategy, whatever, which one, uh, I think Korea would be a very critical partner, uh, not only in sheer terms of military strength and power, but also its geographical location and the political strategic value. Because with Quad, obviously Japan's military is constrained by the so-called peace constitution. And the self-defense force is only half the size of the Koreas. And uh, the active um, military uh, personnel uh, in case of war, uh, the, the Japanese self-defense force uh, could be reduced to half. And you look at Australia, uh, and Australia's uh, military size is uh, only, I believe, uh, one-tenth of South Korea's, standing at uh, a little more than 50,000 forces. And so, 
And if you look at ASEAN states, and historically, ASEAN states has not been really too serving to the interest of the United, uh, United States when it comes to regional security affairs. So that's why South Korea is a, uh, could become a very critical partner to the United States uh, uh, pursuit of uh, Quad and Indo-Pacific strategy for them to become more effective. And I think uh, uh, that's where a strong bargaining chip lies for South Korea's uh, security interests in the region. Uh, I think, uh, so South Korea should seize the moment and take a full advantage of the situation, and especially with uh, uh, K Trump-like leadership coming in. <laughs> I think uh, uh, we could strengthen our relationship with like-minded states and uh, uh, other U.S. allies, including Japan and Australia. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I just have one question for, for Jay Wu. Um, so mm -hmm. you have this K-Trump <laughs> kind of president. Um, but <laughs> My view is that it will take some time for Japan and Korea's relationship to get to a level where both countries are comfortable um, of, mm -hmm. say, enhanced sort of partnership within the Quad Plus. Yeah. Uh, or, um, though yeah. I agree with you that it's crucial, and especially now that you know we have uh, these um, and. Uh, AUKUS and other U.S. initiatives that want to sort of, as you say, strengthen uh, the, the bilateral alliances and also with cooperation with the EU. But um, to, what's your prospect on, on this? What would be the obstacles um, or what would be the window? Where, where is the window of opportunity for the two countries to yeah. see eye to eye? Yeah, I know. The biggest obstacle I see in our relationship with Japan is we have to come up with some some sort of concrete ideas and reasons as to why we want to strengthen our relationship with Japan. I've been advising a couple of presidential can candidates, and including Mr. Yoon, who was elected, that he needs to find something really precise, persuasive to the ears of not only Japanese prime minister and politicians, but also the Japanese public. After five years of uh, our current government uh, behaving in such a way, we want to turn the page over, right? And show something that is uh, 100, 180 degrees different from the previous government. And if we just uh, approach Japan with a simple and 
emotional uh, reason. Uh, a good example would be, hey, we are good na- uh, we are neighboring states, but we should have a better relationship. I don't think that's going to be too persuasive to Japan after all those years of harsh attacking of harsh attacking of Japan. But we have to come up with something really constructive in order to buy the minds and garner support from the Japanese public. And I think that's where the where a, a crucial challenge lies in uh, Yoon's government uh, Japan policy, I would say. Uh, but I think they're struggling with that particular question right now. And since I was dropped off from the transition committee, <laughs> I'm not going to give my ideas <laughs> to them right now. But I will have a chance. <laughs> I will have a chance. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to write that in my uh, next uh, op-ed uh, coming on April 5th. <laughs> Good, good, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they left me out. Oh, well, I think it's... Uh, according to... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Um, no but uh, Bryce, um, what are your uh, thoughts um, on the sort of new development relations with Australia and, and Japan? And how do you see... Um, a, a way for Korea to join in um, from from an Australian perspective. Yeah, I might um, I might take a pass on the last bit of your question. I mean, I'm not um, I'm not terribly uh, confident or persuaded that that will at some stage happen. But look, um, the um, the Japan Australia relationship is of course blossoming at the moment and. Um, uh, for good reason, obviously, we, you know, the Australians and, and Japanese are both uh, trying to figure out where they sit within Asia vis-a-vis China and, and vis-a-vis the US alliance as well. I mean, a lot of the, um, a lot of the new activity between Japan and um, Australia is um, predicated on the notion, I think, of, uh, of, of, U.S. allied partners being more active in a context of declining U.S. power. Um, and that includes both stepping up to the plate to do more for ourselves, but also um, encouraging the United States to stay relevant and current within the region. Um, what's interesting, though, I think about the um, the U.S.-Australia uh, relationship is that it's not asymmetrical like that of the U.S.-Japan relationship, or for that matter, the US, uh, U.S.-Australia relationship. Um, but the U.S.-Japan relationship in particular has been one that's ba- been based on asymmetry. So um, the basic calculus is that the, uh, that the Japanese provide bases and the U.S provides um, protection and, and military heft. Now, that's not the case in uh, the U.S.-Australia uh, relationship. So we'll probably see 
different kind of um, configurations of um, of military cooperation emerging. Um, there is also um, another dynamic that's that's relevant, um, and that is in the United States and Japan, the concept of the use of force um, is um, uh, is actually quite different. So um, Japan, like Australia and like most countries, um, uh, sees a very high threshold. Um, as to what constitutes the use of force in international law, and therefore um, uh, what what would be um, a response by Japan, um, uh, the United States just basically believes that anything that is enacted against it, its military forces is the use of force, um, and so therefore there have been difficulties in around how the um, American and Japanese militaries cooperate, which are not going to be present in the case of Australia and Japan. So again, you might see on the part of Japan at least more um, uh, more sort of um, um, in a sort of a, a more innovative. Um, way of developing policy when it's cooperating with this other partner that has very similar um, ideas about um, um, about what the use of force actually is. It's actually a very complicated um, issue, but I think it's a very relevant one within the relationship. Having said that, I think there are going to be some difficulties um, in the way the two militaries cooperate because um, although there are similar ideas surrounding um, the use of force, there are different ideas, um, as with the United States, surrounding um, uh, the, the state's prerogative to use the military. So like the United States, um, Australia doesn't really have any legislative um, restrictions on when military forces or where military forces are deployed um, and, you know, in what actions they can be used. Whereas in Japan, I mean, in in the Japanese case, when talking about the Constitution, everybody f- tends to focus on Article 9. Um, but a lot of the restrictions surrounding the Japanese military um, actually result in the fact that the Prime Minister doesn't have um, prerogative powers when it comes to the military. The Prime Minister can only um, enact the policy that he or maybe one day she has been um, has been provided by the Diet. And that's a very different kind of um, framework from the framework in which the United States and Australia um, operate in. And that's going to have to be, I don't think that's very well understood. It is, it is, um, it is something that um, is potentially consequential for cooperation between uh, Japan and Australia. Um, as listeners will know, Japan and Austra- Australia have recently signed a reciprocal access agreement. Um, and um, that's been sort of played up, at least by the Australian government, as a new kind of security pact. It's nothing of the sort. It is a legal arrangement that allows uh, essentially a framework for the two nations' forces to be within each other's country legally, and that's significant, but it isn't the meat and potatoes of the security arrangement. Um, uh, 
<laughs> meat and potatoes, very Western reference there. Um, uh, what uh, what what is going to be more significant are the agreements that will follow that will lay out exactly what um, cooperation is possible um, and what what cooperation the two current countries will um, will undertake and that's going to be largely defined by the self-defense forces law in Japan um, because without that legal framework in Japan um, the Japanese forces can't do anything the 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 executive in Japan doesn't have the prerogatives as they do in Australia so it'll be interesting to see how that develops I assume it's going to be um, a very arduous process in terms of um, the negotiations so you know the fact that we've got a reciprocal access agreement isn't sort of game over and here comes Japanese remilitarization or something like that um, it is part of a slow process where the roles and responsibilities of two countries that are very complementary are going to be um, consistently redefined and updated thank you thank you Thanks, Bryce. It's um, I think the the part about um the agreement as well as uh, the Japan Japanese Prime Minister's prerogative powers being a lot more limited is it's actually a very important point that many overlook. Actually, I don't think even the Japanese know. <laughs> anyway, so um, I think uh, we're coming to the end of our recording um of the podcast, and um, first of all. My little 10 second um, takeaway was that I think in general we are turning a page because of and in spite of Ukraine um, and, and that region, at least the San Francisco system based arrangements are not as bad or tattered uh, or affected even. Um, as uh, some may presume, because of Ukraine. And the observations about China, I think, is also very important that Jay Wu gave about the, the sort of foreign policy postures uh, that the current Chinese regime would have. Um, and as for closer ties, uh, Quad Plus, to say that we've begun a new chapter. If we're in agreement with that, I think we're we're pretty much uh, set for uh, at least an open mindset of dialogue. So I hope we progress in in a positive direction. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fair Observer podcast in collaboration with the IFR Research Center, Osaka School of International Public Policy. I hope you can join us again in our next episode. Goodbye.